You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Gators Breakdown, because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Joining me as they do every Sunday, well, except for last Sunday. We missed Nick last Sunday, but uh, Nick DeLatore from Gator Country joining us here on Gators Breakdown. Graham Hall from the Gainesville Sun, joining us right here on Gators Breakdown. Nick, I'll jump straight to you because you, you made the trip to Nashville, and uh, we, we, uh, we three jokingly behind the scenes yesterday were wondering if you were, uh, if you were going to make it uh, to this one. For two weeks in a row, we, we didn't want to miss you here on Gators Breakdown. It, uh, it's, it's always touch and go. Graham has, I think Graham has seen me in action uh, in Nashville, but um, they just gone back. <clears throat> excuse me, they had just gone back to phase two on Monday. So everything closed at 11, kind of kept me in my place uh, in Nashville. It wasn't my typical Nashville experience. And uh, I'm here about, about an hour off the plane, but I'm here. <laughs> with, thanks with for a very, uh, large, a very large coffee. Thanks for uh, getting it done here. Getting it done. Uh, Graham, when we were joking yesterday, I was like, uh, next here, here in the uh, Nashville story for, from Nick, it just, uh, Took me back to our three trip to Birmingham last year. Uh, so I'm looking forward to 2021 just because uh, Nick's getting to enjoy the the road trips. We not so much. And uh, so uh, uh, I'm ready for 2020 for uh, another reason for 2020 to get over with. So we can uh, we can all take these road trips together again. Yeah, I mean, without 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 sharing the details, we'll just say that Steve Spurrier called me and another uh, another writer out for uh, having looked like we had spent a long night out on Broadway prior to getting into uh, the press box. And I was like, you know what? That's a good call, coach. Didn't need you to make that call, good but good call. Could I? You know, always known for uh, his vision on the field. And uh, now it extends to often as well. You know, yeah, I hope that by 2022 or whatever it is that everything is normal in a sense and that we can hit Broadway and I got to admit, and I hope that no one is going to kill me for this and I should expect uh, otherwise though, but I'm not the biggest country music fan, but when I get to Broadway, it all comes out. Everything takes you, it takes over you. It takes over me. I, I, there's no restraint left in me. It's not my choice anymore. And it takes a special place like that. I'm not even the biggest hockey fan. And my dream is to leave a hockey game and then just walk to the river and not remember how I got there. Just dream higher. <laughs> dream well, bigger. I mean, it's, it, it's Nick, it's your birthday. Your your I what your 26th, 27th birthday coming up. So I know <laughs> yeah. that you have it. It's one of the anniversaries of my 26th birthday. <laughs> you don't have it in you anymore. You don't have the energy anymore. And you know, let me just say this. I'm not gonna say who it was, but I know our guy who loves the cranberry vodka misses Broadway more than us. And I know that he's going to be back there in two years as well. That'll be a crucial trip. Absolutely. <laughs> you only live once. People only live once. Baby. 
All right. Yeah. We're all looking forward to, to trips again, but here we are 2020 Florida Vanderbilt. We'll get into it. But before we do remember, you can find Gators breakdown at newsforjacks.com slash Gators breakdown. You'll find all the Gators breakdown episodes there as well as news for Jack's coverage of the Gators. Please share rate and review the show on YouTube. Hit that like button, hit that subscribe button really helps us out here on Gators breakdown. Or if you just want the to go audio version, check us out on your favorite podcast platform and follow Gators Breakdown on social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Gators Breakdown. So, guys, slow start. Slow start for, for, for these Gators. Probably the slowest start uh, of the season uh, for this offense. Kind of um, ex- the trend for the defense uh, right now, these slow starts. Uh, it's happening. But all in all, Gators come out with a 21-point victory over the Commodores. And we're at the point now where – enough progress has been made under Dan Mullen where 21 point wins against SEC opponents are now disappointing. <laughs> I'm better than the alternative. Exactly. Better, better than, I mean, I've watched like 16 to nine games in Nashville. Um, Austin Harden, uh, field, Austin, Austin Harden field goals in the swamp to beat Vandy. <laughs> Austin, the legend Harden, the, the stories around Midtown. Um, it's, it's one thing. So it's, it's crazy because I said in the first half, I was like, ah, Kyle Trask isn't having a great game. And then, you know, uh, I mean, he thought he had some underthrows, just didn't look sharp early on. And then at the end of the game, you look at it and he's 26 of 35 for 383 and three touchdowns. And I think at least five drops, maybe six. If you include Rick Wells, not knowing where the back of the end zone is. And if you start doing that, you're like, all right, well now he's 31 of 35 for 383. And I was like an idiot saying he didn't have a good game. But I think there were some balls that were underthrown. Um, Vanderbilt was really dropping back in coverage and, and forcing him to, to, make some, to make some decisions. I think there were guys open, um, and he decided to check down. Um, but, I mean, still, you, you, there's some throws. I think it was a, an out route that he threw to Jacob Copeland, and there's still throws that I look at, and I'm like, that's a Sunday throw. That's, that's a throw – that there's guys getting paid to play today as we talk that can't make that throw that Kyle Trash just made to Jacob Copeland on the sideline. Um, so to me, yeah, it, the offense was a little bit slow. You look at the numbers, they kind of picked it up. It's just, it's, it's always weird in Nashville um, at 11 a.m. Um, it, it just, I mean, historically, I mean, you even look back at Urban Meyer, Urban Meyer's team struggled in Nashville. I don't know what it is because I know the team wasn't out on Broadway. Um, but, but it's just kind of weird games happen in Nashville. And I think the offense started slow, but picked it up. Yeah, it's so strange to me because last week against Arkansas, we see the game with what a four, open with a what a 14 play, 75 yard drive by Florida, where they take more than seven minutes a game clock. And, you know, no one is out there saying, well, that's a slow start by the offense, just because they obviously finished with 63 plus points. It looks methodical when you do that. I thought that, and maybe this had to do with Stuart Reese being out. I think I don't want to point to necessarily one player, but I thought that this was also the weakest game we've seen since the season opener when it comes to Florida's offensive line. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I don't know what necessarily it was, but like you guys said, they were able to drop seven, sometimes eight in the coverage because they were able to get pressure with a four-man rush. And I don't think the offense's offensive line is anywhere near where it was last season. Let's let's establish that. They're still far and away there. But in terms of games where I thought there was a little bit of a drop-off, I, I think that this game you could certainly make a case that the offensive line struggled with a Vanderbilt defensive line that most people were not saying was going to give them a whole lot of trouble coming in. If anything, I had written that that Vanderbilt's offense, I think, would be a little bit better than most people expected. You look at some of the stats coming in, ranked 10th in the SEC, better than Kentucky, Tennessee, and I know that's not really high praise, but you could really say that outside of LSU, this is the best passing offense Florida was going to face. So I wasn't so much surprised by the defensive slow start as I was kind of by some of these offensive drop-offs in a sense. And some of them can be explained by not having Stuart Reese out there, having a Josh Braun in there, the right side of the line, I don't think benefited as much as we've seen in the past. But I, I was more surprised by the offensive slow start in a sense rather than the defensive one yeah i, I did say uh on twitter once the lance got beat a couple of times it seemed to me the offense went a bit conservative 
Cause I think they kind of just noticed that and was like, okay, we got to get this under control a bit, getting try, try to find a bit of a groove because Delance is out there struggling. Let's dial it back a little bit. Let's get some more basics. Let's get the offensive line warmed up and they play better uh, as the game uh, moved on. But kind of Nick's point. Yeah. 26 to 35 for Trask, 383, three touchdowns. And that was considered an off day. So <laughs> it's uh, that, that's, that's the level Kyle Trask is playing at right now. So a uh, bit of a slow start, missed some throws. Uh, you know, and then back to Nick's point, eventually showed what he showed, shown all, uh, all season, even after getting sacked by his own offensive lineman. So uh, he showed uh, great pocket presence behind, you know, the offensive line's worst performance of the season to Graham's point there. I mean, look, guys, he's still getting everybody involved. Another game without Kyle Pitts, but here we are. Shorter had five receptions. Copeland with five. Gamble with three and two touchdowns. Grimes with three and a touchdown. Nine receivers called a pass. Running backs had four catches. Once again, without Pitts, he finds a way to, to get the right guy the ball, including, you know, but in, in, all within the game plan. He's not, not forcing anything. It's hey, look, the, the game plan of this offense and then the way this offense is run Guys are going to get the ball. A lot of guys are going to get the ball if things are going right, and you, do you have success doing it? So it's just uh, you know credit to Trask again for as maybe maybe forced a couple early, but as the game moved on, just kind of fell right into what we expect him to be doing this season. And shame on all you guys for trying to to, to bench Gene Delance. He got his first career sack um, <laughs> on Saturday. There's no reason to bench someone when they get a career milestone. Um, but I, I want that's my, my segue into I, I, at some point, do you need to start? You've got two, maybe three more games. Do you need to start figuring out if there's a, a better option at right tackle? Can you move garage over there? It, I don't think you would want to put like Josh Braun at right tackle and Ethan White at right guard. And Park, then have, Park, you know, Park when his shown flashes there <laughs> when he got a chance. Yeah, it's just you're, you're playing somebody so young and, and, yeah. and you're, you're, Listen, we can talk about it and because we're not making plays on Saturday. We're not scheming. You're building towards Alabama. And Alabama just had more points in the second half than they allowed Kentucky to have yards. Like, this is cool. You still have other games to play. You need to beat Kentucky. You need to beat Tennessee. But everything is gearing you towards playing Alabama. And I don't know how Gene DeLance is going to fare um, against Alabama. So, to me, it's kind of, hey, you've got two weeks to – kind of figure some things out on offense and defense because you've got a big, bad Alabama team waiting for you uh, in Atlanta. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll definitely uh, get into that part of, you know, but uh, Graham, what do you think about that? I mean, we, we, it was it was brought up last week uh, as well, you know, especially Gene DeLance and, and what his play on the right side there. And I like Nick's point there. Like, you only have so many games left and before you want to peak at that Alabama game, at that SEC championship game, does peaking come about because you start replacing guys and start getting other guys in there? Because if you're going to do it, you need to do it relatively soon so you get more reps for the whoever that you're putting in those new places. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I'm not – let me say I'm not a coach, and so I don't want to necessarily say, oh, what I'm going to say in terms of analysis is 100% right, but it, it does look like there's a noticeable drop-off between – Stone Forsyth's play on the left and John DeLance's play on the right side. And obviously, you know, knowing that he is a true freshman, an early enrollee, heralded one next to him, um, playing similar to him, I think has to be a little bit concerning, but also maybe he has a greater responsibility than Stone Forsyth necessarily. So I don't necessarily want to jump the gun and say it's totally because of DeLance's play, but this is nothing new in a sense. You can go back to last year and the failure to improve necessarily on the right side compared to the left. Let me remind everyone that Stone Forsyth was getting criticism as well when he was kind of getting his feet wet at a, as a starter, especially protecting Felipe Franks' blind side and, and now Kyle Trask's and Emory Jones's blind side. I, I think there's a little bit higher expectations in a sense, but you've seen this guy make massive improvements over the last, what, 20 games that he has been able to play 60 snaps a game and get full attention with the ones in practice. So I think that naturally it is okay to ask the question, well, what is happening at the right side improvement wise? It's not happening at the left side of the line. I think that as a fan, as a media member, that's a fair question to ask rather than necessarily say, Oh, this person needs to be replaced. 
but it seems like it's a fair question to ask and has been for several weeks now. Let me say that when it comes to replacing him possibly at right tackle, when you're going to Atlanta or facing LSU or anything else that, that you want to jump the gun on in a sense, I don't know if there's anyone who can come in right away and it's going to be better than John DeLance. I don't know if it's Ethan White. I, I don't know who it necessarily is. If it's Griffin McDowell or who it is on the roster that could possibly be the guy to step in there. If this unit gets Stuart Reese back, I think you'll see it much improved. But I, I don't know with only four games left if there's anyone who can come in and short-term will be better than John DeLance. Now, long-term, I am absolutely one of those people who assumes, and I think rightfully so, that John Hevesy is developing a right tackle for when John DeLance is out of this program in four or five games. I just don't know if he's seen any progression from whoever that is right now to warrant putting them in against Alabama and have more success than DeLance. It's kind of one of those things you just have to live with it, overload that side, uh, have your running back lined up and pass protection behind your right tackle, whatever you got to do, you have to find a way to solidify that line. And I don't know if necessarily a reserve is the answer. Yeah, we did see on the rushing touchdown there, they gave him a little bit of help with uh, Braun there at uh, right guard to, to help with a double team. But Bobby didn't even need to help. DeLance, they, 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 they called a double team, but DeLance actually held his block pretty good and didn't really need the double team there. So up and down, but yeah, it's just a consistent uh, performance there that we see week in and week out that we can tell that's the weak link right now uh, of this offensive line. Kind of to go with this offensive line a bit more in, in the run game, Nick, I want to get your thoughts on here because you were able to look at it from up high. And you've, we've all, all mentioned here how Vanderbilt, much like Arkansas, dropped – you know, so many guys in coverage, whether it be seven or eight, and only rush three or four. But Pierce social nice burst to the edge. You needed Emory a bit more this week to help in the run game because uh, this was, you know, a struggling run performance that I think we that we've more so than we've seen uh, the rest of the season there. And I'm going to keep harping on it, guys, until I see it. Explosive run still an issue, and this is the theme. I thought this is the game that I thought that might remedy itself a bit, you know. Uh, but here you go again. Trask had the second longest run of the day, and that was a 13 yard run behind Pierce's 16 yard run. The three main running backs in Emory accounted for 31 carries, and they still can't break the big one. Overall, 40 attempts for 173 yards is average of 4.3 yards a carry. Uh, uh, Damian Pierce touchdown, but. I get it in the sense if they're going to keep dropping seven, eight guys, it's going to be hard to break the big runs because you got, you got to sit there. Look, getting past the initial defensive line is not going to be the issue, but can you go out there and make, you know, on one side of the field, five, six guys miss to break off that long run? So there is some explanation as to why it's not happening, but it has been an issue all season. And this is the game I thought we might get a break from that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, and, and I don't think anyone will argue, Florida's not a running team. Um, and, and I thought I said it on my, on, on our Gator country podcast. And I almost said jokingly, I was like, you know, Dan Mullen shows or has shown that he will find a weakness and that's what they're going to attack. And they'll go over it after it, after it, after. And I said, Arkansas is such a bad run defense. I was like, maybe Florida will run for 200. And then I laughed at it. I was like, no, probably not 200, but they should try to run the ball against Arkansas because Arkansas was, I think at the time, the 12th or 13th ranked rush defense. And then they go out and they run for 200. And then, like you said, and I, and I, I was nodding my head all week as you were sitting there and saying, they, there's no explosive runs. They need to, I need to see it. We need to add that dimension. And now I'm looking at that Arkansas game and that, those 200 yards. And I'm thinking that was probably fool's gold. And, and you were able to run for 200 against Arkansas and 173 against Vanderbilt because those teams can't stop the run. And then you look at a team like Georgia. 37 carries for 97 yards, 2.6 a clip. I'm like, that's probably what you are. And, and, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm being a little overcritical, but I just don't think, I think Florida is probably capable of running the ball just enough to keep you honest, Yeah. but they're not going to be that team, Dave, that, that gives you, you know, a big 30, 35 yard run, a 40 yard run. Um, other than Kyle Traxon, uh, you know, the second coming of Lamar, that, that might be your best, your best running attack. And that's just where they are as a team. And, and, I, and I don't hate it. Someone's I'm going to, I'll hate it. Once somebody is able to stop Florida's passing yep. attack and right. make Florida try to run to win the game. Cause they won't be able to do it. Yeah, um, I mean, but right now I'm having fun watching, watching Kyle Trask sling the ball over the yard. 
Yeah, like I said, at this point for me, it is nitpicking. And, you know, it's just probably it's better just, to nitpick than to cover, you know, Will yes. Muschamp and Jim McElwain's offenses. I'm much happier right now, Dave. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it, it's nitpicking and it's just really just one dimension that we would like to see added. You, you, like you said, Nick, you may, there might be a point at a point in the season where you may need it. Probably not. But, you know, in, in the games that I thought they probably could get it done, Vandy, Vandy and Arkansas, like you said, it's like if you can't break those explosive runs and that, okay, you, you are what you are <laughs> at this point with that. And look, what you, what you are right now is an elite passing game and an elite passing team. And there's no shame whatsoever in that. It's gotten you to where you're fighting for a college football playoff spot here with just a few games uh, remaining in the season. Here we go. Uh, situational football, guys. I, wanna, I wanted to hit this one here. Second quarter and right before and after halftime. Florida outscored Vanderbilt 10 nothing in the second quarter, outgaining the Commodores 128-71. to And once again, it was team football. Uh, Vanderbilt had the ball with 413 left in the first half and sent out the tweet. I was like, here is the – all season, this is where we've seen the defense show up, get the offense the ball, they go score right before halftime, and they did it again. Vanderbilt had the ball with 413 left in the first half. Gators defense forced Bandy to four plays and a punt. Gators offense takes the field, 234 left, and once again puts together a drive right before halftime. Seven plays, 85 yards, capped off by the go-up and get it catch by Trevon Grimes. Third week in a row we've seen Florida wide receivers make that kind of catch. That gave Florida a 17-10 lead. And, Graham, the Gators never looked back after that uh, big big drive right before halftime. Yeah, I kind of got a little bit of deja vu um, from – Maybe that 2018 game, you know, even though the circumstances were far different, Florida's down, what, 20 oh, yeah. three, and it takes a, you know, that, that midfield clash between Derek Mason and, and Dan Mullen for, for Florida's offense, you know, obviously led by LaMichael P. Ryan right there, uh, to come alive in a sense, and then they outscored the opposition 34-6 uh, to six the rest of the way, win that game 37-27, down 21-3, I mean, that is kind of what you can expect out of, you know, a Dan Mullen offense. This is a team that does not hang their heads when they're down. They kind of get a little bit motivated. We've seen it week in and week out. Go back to that Georgia game when the pick six happens and they respond with, you know, hitting Naquan right on the wheel route for 50 yards and then score in three plays. And when you have the ability to do that, that is so demoralizing to another team's defense that Florida absolutely realizes that. And you've seen them do that probably – more consistently than they've done anything else. You know, you have to give this coaching staff and especially Brian Johnson a whole lot of credit for, for not really panicking, you know, trusting the offensive game plan and adjusting to what the other team's defense is doing. Because when you combine all those things, when you face a deficit, you're more often than not going to respond if if you don't panic and you trust your game plan. And, And we've seen Florida do that consistently throughout Dan Mullen's three seasons in Gainesville. And that was something that, you know, Nick, you can attest to this as well. It was fleeting more often than not in the Will Muschamp and and Jim McElwain eras in Gainesville. You you would see them panic. You would see them lose confidence after scripted drives, regardless of whatever the circumstance was when Florida got hit in the mouth, they were not this team that was thinking, okay, we're going to go hit you back right away. And I think of resilient, you know, actually pursuing it, you know, like, and doing it and, and going for you, you know, you're not seeing that happen. This is not a team that is panicking when they're down. And to me, that is a much more positive attribute than whether the right side of the line is struggling or whether the offensive line isn't, isn't getting, you know, isn't pulling downfield well enough or as well as we've seen in recent years. And the point about the rushing attack, you know, that was kind of negated in my mind when you saw how Kadarius Tony got his 200 plus yards in other ways. I mean, this is a guy who had a hundred career high receiving yards. And that's something that I feel no one is talking about, you know, but kind of missed that as well. 107 receiving yards. That's twice this season with Kadarius Tony in six games in SEC competition has set his career high in receiving yards, did it against Texas A&M as well. And then adds a hundred plus yards on punt returns and kick returns. That is a guy who found ways to, you know, not make it so the Florida really needed to rely on the run when you're setting them up inside, uh, Vanderbilt territory so as much of an issue the run game the lack of consistency may be I think that Florida has found ways to negate that or when it comes to hitting teams back in the mouth make it so that it's kind of a moot point yeah I'm just kind of 
we'll, and we're going to move to the defense, but I'll give them credit there to start with. As I said, it, that part that we've seen, and we've seen that part all season, when Florida has a chance to get the ball right before halftime, the defense does show up almost every time in, 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 in that situation, situational football. They think they're, they're okay there on defense right before halftime and uh, right after halftime there and, and, and getting their scores. But we do have to talk about <laughs> the negative here uh, when we discuss the, the defense. We'll start there. Uh, I felt uh, like we were being negative about the offense. Like, you, you know, know what? Yeah, that did like, cross my mind. That did cross my mind it, a little it, bit. It, it, like, I'm, I'm, I'm having so much fun watching for his <laughs> offense. But it's like you said, you kind of have to nitpick. And I'd rather be nitpicking than being like, well, Charlie Weiss's game plan didn't work again. Yeah. Here, let's yeah. talk about it. And uh, so that felt more negative than it should be. Listen, you, I mean, it's still, right. I, I do want to point that out because it did cross my head too. I did, it's it's I almost did 600 yards, yep. 21 point, point win. Like the offense is great. The offense right. is fantastic. We're being extremely nitpicky because we can't just sit here and, you know, and just say that this is the best offense that's ever, you know, been on the face of the earth. Uh, I say that because we're definitely about to get way more negative talking about the defense. I didn't want it to be like, man, Florida is Florida six and one because they just sat here, you know, bashing this team for an hour. Yeah, yeah and, and don't get me wrong, the, the offense did have a good day. As I said, you look at the total stats, you look at everything. It's definitely stats you would have taken at any point in in the last two previous coaching stats, and you know, so it, it, you, we it, we are at the point now. And that's kind of what aggravated Steve Spurrier a little bit. But we are at the point right now where, okay, you can start saying, okay, maybe 350 yards isn't enough. <laughs> or, or maybe three touchdowns by Kyle Trask isn't enough. Don't get me wrong. It is. It is. We're, we're going to run damn long out of town. But here we go. Yeah, we, uh, we, we do have to talk about it. And we'll start at the very beginning of the game, kind of going in order here for the defense. It kind of just falls in line here. But the starts by this defense, guys, it, it, not good. First two drives, you know, Van, Vandy goes and, and, and puts up a touchdown and a field goal. Um, Vanderbilt's gaining 6.3 yards per play on the first two drives, gaining 6.8 yards on first down. They're 3 of 4 on third down conversions with an average of 3.5 yards to go. So they're gaining yards on their on the early downs so that they average 3.5 yards to go on the first few third downs of the game and they gained 7.8 so they had no problem converting those third downs early in the game marco wilson brad stewart struggled early on their pressure did get better uh nick i think you and i both kind of pointed that out yesterday on on, on twitter right at the same time we noticed pressure uh getting better whether it was manufactured or just a defensive line playing better Pressure did get better after those first couple of drives. The defense improved. Uh, no surprise there. You get pressure up front, you're going to see improvement there. But, guys, it's the same issues we saw lining up pre-snap, soft coverage, rushing three, missed tackles, all reared its head uh, again uh, versus Vanderbilt, uh, mostly early on. Now, I know pregame was a little weird for Florida, but these are the same issues that's been there most of the season. Credit to them for settling down and playing well for the rest of the game besides the, the explosive 58-yard reception uh, given up. But you know, it did get better. But these starts are, are hurting Florida. And the defense has allowed – I had to go back and look it up. The defense has allowed an opening drive touchdown in five of the seven games this year. Only Ole Miss and Missouri did not score on their opening possession. So, look, and, and, and I, I've said it and I've beat this drum. It's inexcusable to me for having these miscommunication issues in year three, game seven, of where we're at right now. There's enough experience on this defense for that not to be an issue, but it's there. And <laughs> at this point, we said it on the panel this past week, at this point, that issue, it, it, it has to fall on coaching since we're seeing it in year three under Grantham and this late into the season. Yeah, you know, during that game. Yeah, I, I want, let me let me sorry, go ahead, Graham, real go quick, ahead. real quick, because I I think that when you see former players like John Grenard coming out and pinning it on inexperience and defending Todd Grantham, I I do think you kind of have to give that some credence, yes, but then remember that this is a guy who was so loyal to Todd Grantham that not only did he play for him at you know Louisville, but comes here and transfers here to his system as well, so he knows that he's going to benefit from that system. I don't necessarily think that applies to a lot of the guys that Florida is lining up on Saturdays. And I think we have enough body of evidence right now to, to put it on personnel in a sense that the scheme just does not maximize the talents 
of Florida's starting defense. And I do see mistakes, and I do think those can get corrected with experience, but I think we have enough body of evidence to, to say by now that there are some scheme issues here that are, are not maximizing Florida's talents. And, you know, it, it does pain me when I see guys like Marco Wilson and, and Sean Davis getting bashed on Twitter over things that may necessarily not be their fault because we've seen those guys have success at Florida when there's been more experienced players around them necessarily. Yes, but we've seen them have success when other people do their jobs. And I understand a lot of the criticism for Todd Grantham. He's making that money and he understands that that comes with the territory that you're going to have a lot of people who have opinions and some of those are going to be informed and some of those are going to be very uninformed, but the body of evidence right now continues to grow that I'm kind of in the camp right now that thinks that there are many other defensive schemes that would be better suited for the roster that with this offense, who's to say that the results wouldn't be even more significant. One thing I got to say before I turn over, I do think it's a little bit funny when there is all this panic after the first drive. Because if anything, Florida fans should remember, you know, what that first drive can often mean for a team. That could be your scripted drive. When Ken Seals went down the field and completed, what, five or five passes for 61 yards on that first drive, yeah, I was a little bit concerned. But you always have to remember what you told yourself a few years ago. That may be the best Vanderbilt drive you see all game. Grant, my, my, my only my only fight back on that but my only fight back on that is though would it have been successful if Florida could just get lined up I mean it's it's this it's the issue there of just the basics that are allowing these teams to score early on yeah no I, I do think the lining up thing uh, you know people laugh when the media ask Dan Mullen questions like 11 a.m <laughs> kickoff no fans yeah. you know Nick you can attest to this I think they got to the stadium Graham, I don't know what happened. You went, you went, okay, there you go. You went away for a second. Who knows how much that played a part for Florida. So, you know, it, it is something that, you know, Nick, what time did they get there? You saw them at halftime. And I, I even put out there, you know, as a kind of a joke that it was kind of funny to see the, the backup locker room double as the media area that we, talk to the players after the game what three four years ago i don't think many people who especially talk about facilities this this time of year especially down in florida really realize how antiquated some of the things at vanderbilt are i was not shocked by some of the decisions that florida made when it came to their pregame preparation and i was not shocked to see that kind of have an effect on some of those things that you're saying Dave about lining up and just getting because it did seem like a glorified scrimmage or practice in a sense with the the atmosphere and then you add in all the facilities on top of that it just I don't know what's your take on that Nick um yeah the, I mean the team showed up at 10 I thought that was a good decision listen uh it Vanderbilt's a small stadium it's not that they have a terrible facility it's just a small stadium and but they Florida's do have visit. terrible facilities. <laughs> but like, but like Florida's, Florida's visiting locker room is, is small and smells and is the a visiting locker room is the last place you're going to put money in into your stadium. Like, why am I, why am I, I'm not going to put, we're doing renovations. Hey, you want to touch a visiting locker room? No, that's fine. Don't put money there. We're never going to use it. Um, but I thought it was a smart decision. And listen, for somebody like Dan Mullen that stuck his foot in his mouth with, you know, the 90,000 in the swamp and then watch it completely blow up when his team got COVID. Hey, we're going to do everything possible to be as safe and as cautious as we can on this trip. And if we get laughed at for doing stuff, cool. Because if we end up having another outbreak or if, if, if COVID hits us again, you can't point to us and say, well, they were lax days going on the road and they didn't do everything they could. Florida did absolutely everything from wearing N95 masks on the plane having Nick Savage walk up and down and make sure everyone, even if they're sleeping, that the mask is still over their nose and their mouth, um, assigned roommates, assigned tables when you're sitting, showing up, getting taped in the locker or getting taped at the hotel so you can spread out and guys get taped. Guys were on the bus with their ankles taped, 
and their you know knee pads and thigh pads in on the bus on the way to the stadium. They show up an hour before kickoff, and I don't use that as, as an excuse. As a player, I think that's awesome. Like, hey, we're dressed. We're ready to go. This feels like high school again. We're just rolling the ball out, and we're ready to go play. Um, so for me, I think, you know, you can say, hey, it messed up your routine. But for the defense, I'm thinking, yeah, let's just get out there. I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm dressed before we get to the field. Let's do this. Um, so for me, I had no problem with it, and, and I kind of alluded to it before the game. Um, but yeah, that's not an excuse to me. For me, I wanted to get back to the whole not lining up. Cause to me, that's, I, we brought Jawan Taylor on. Yeah. I know mm-hmm. fans don't love Jawan Taylor, but he's a very, very smart football player. And I asked him, cause I said, you know, like, Hey, these guys aren't getting lined up. Is the scheme too hard? And for him, it's not, but I'm like, maybe it is for somebody else that, that, you know, doesn't have your football IQ. It doesn't study the way you do, but Age is not an excuse. And I love John Grenard. That's not an excuse. This is the uh, flip card that, that the media gets. And it's got everyone alphabetical. Florida's too deep. Brenton Cox, granted, only, only been in the program for two years, but he's a redshirt sophomore. Andrew Chatfield, redshirt sophomore, third year in the defense. Kyrie Campbell, senior, third year in the defense. TJ Slayton, senior, third year in the defense. Marlon Dunlap, redshirt senior. Third year in the defense. Zach Carter, redshirt junior, third year. Jeremiah Moon, redshirt senior, third year. Ventrell Miller, James Houston, redshirt juniors, third year. Amari Bernie, junior. Marco Wilson, redshirt junior. Sean Davis, senior. Donovan Snyder, senior. Trey Dean, junior. Kyrie Elam, Kyrie sophomore. But been in the program two years. Brad Stewart, senior, three years. Age is not an issue. The experience is not an issue. And it's not only that these guys are veteran players, They've been in this defense. So if you can't get lined up by your third year, how difficult can Todd Grantham make it? Like at some point, when do you point the finger at yourself and not at the coaching staff? Because if I if a deep it can't be that difficult. If you've been in the same playbook for three years, it can't be that complicated that you're still having trouble lining up. And at what point do you say it's not on the scheme, it's on the players? And we and yesterday I'll go back to it too. And Graham, I'll, I'll let you jump in here. I got to ask Nick a quick question because he's he's been doing this real quick longer than me. Do you ever when you see some joke? No, 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 no. <laughs> remember I already told you your birthday. Do you ever think about? I mean, you and I were here. It was I think my first season here, and we spoke to guys like John Bullard and Caleb Brantley about their issues in the program in the first two years. And when it comes to fundamental development issues. I think you can absolutely say that those between 2015 and 2020 are monumentally different. You had guys who were not even having a chance heading into their junior year at being a two deep who were on that defensive line in a sense. And that's just not the case anymore. These guys, like you say, have years of experience. And so I try and always put it in comparison. Yeah. It used to be that when you were a, three years in the program, that may not necessarily mean that you've played a whole lot. And there was given, I guess, some leeway to your faults. Now we expect guys who, if they've been in the program two years to be able to come in and not play flawlessly, but not make those fundamental mistakes. And I always kind of think of that because the bar is just so much higher now when it comes to how these defensive players are expected to be in. And that, I guess, comes with the territory, comes with the expectations, sure, sure, but it's not, it doesn't erase the fact that, you see what I'm saying? It doesn't erase the fact that this is still a huge ask for guys who are slotting in here in some cases. And the reason we're not giving them that leeway is because they have starting experience, regardless of their age, in a sense. Does that make sense? Sort of, but I think I think a lot of the issues were alleviated once you got Kyrie Campbell back because then that's when you had guys playing out of position, and I think the defense has gotten better there. Um, Kyrie Elam did say that mm-hmm. at times against Vanderbilt, plays were getting in slow, and, and and listen, that's not on the players. I just said I just listed all these players and their how how long they've been in the program and they shouldn't be getting it, um, shouldn't be getting confused by play calls and by schemes, but. Hey, if, if the play call comes in and I'm turning as the middle linebacker to tell the guy to play, and now the ball's getting hiked, all right, now we're now we're screwed. 
And, and Nick, to, um, Nick that's to on the coaching on, staff. Yeah, Nick, to extend so, on that, that's kind of where I wanted to go next. Look, there's mass substitutions on third down. They're bringing yeah. a whole new personnel in on third down. And I think offenses are picking up on that and say, hey, it's third down now. We know Florida is going to bring some new personnel on the field. Let's go faster. But my thing is – And if we don't need. substitute, then, they don't have, then there's no dead ball. So, right. hey, let's put – we got our personnel here. If Florida's bringing down seven guys, cool. Hike the ball. Let's go. Exactly. But my point is, isn't this why you recruited a whole bunch of guys who could play in different positions so you didn't have to mass substitute on third down? So that's the coaching part of it to me. Look, this – Quit substituting so much on third down. Put a person – I mean, to me, that has to be the next step. You know offenses are now taking advantage of this substitution thing that you're going to do. Guys are coming in. The ball snap. They're not lined up. So, it is a – look, and I've, and I've said it all year. When the defense looks bad in spots and it looks so bad, there you can point to both sides. You can point to coaching. You can point to personnel because that's how you get when it looks really bad. It takes, it takes both sides to look really bad. I felt like I felt like the Kermit meme. I, you were you were you were preaching. I'm just over here. That's none of my business. <laughs> let me let me say real quick. And as much as this is what I kept thinking of yesterday, if anyone's lined up incorrectly, uncovered, wrong assignments, pre-snap, when there's 840 fans in the stadium and you're a head coach, you better be able to scream that out there so that mm-hmm. your players can hear that. That is absolutely no excuse this year. With that said, if you're going to rotate players, cross-train players, you know, sub as much as Florida is doing, it's also on the 11 players on the field to communicate with everyone else on defense. And it gives a lot of credence to why people like myself, Nick, Dave, everyone on the beat spoke about the importance of David Reese and how he helped those young players just saying, this is the play call. This is where you should be. This is your assignment. This is what this guy's going to do. There's a reason he was called the professor, because when there was that confusion out there, he would minimize the chance of that really hurting Florida. And we heard that from coaches himself. And it was kind of why I was a little bit taken aback that this guy went undrafted. I understand that the NFL game is that you know moving away from that. But when it comes to developing younger players and being kind of a coach out there in the field, we had heard for the last couple of years that this was an invaluable player in a sense. And I don't know. I think Ventrell Miller's doing a great job and not having James Houston out there, not having Jeremiah Moon is certainly going to help Florida from a leadership and an experience and speaking up on the field standpoint. But I don't know if there is that security, that reassurance when the 11 guys are out there from someone on the field that this is going to happen. And I think you're just seeing a lot more blown assignments, blown coverages because guys think they're supposed to be doing one thing and they were never told otherwise they're supposed to be doing something otherwise. Yeah, I think that's where I go with it too. Like, how come we didn't see these issues in year one and year two? Like, in like I'm saying, in year three, you wouldn't expect to see these issues. But I guess one part that you can really point to is because of the leadership that somebody like David Reese or, or you know, CJ Henderson brought. You had experienced guys, one at the second level, one on the back end, that were able to to, to overcome that and, and help guys get lined up. You had Grenard, who, yes, they only played one year, but knew this defense, knew what to expect from, from, from Todd Grantham. So you know, there are different ways to look at it. I just I, I just find it hard to excuse it that it's year three and we're still having still having guys getting lined up in, in the wrong part uh, there. So to give a little bit of credit here, Kyrie Campbell, Gervin Dexter setting career highs in tackles for those guys. Campbell with nine, Dexter with six. Mahmoud Diabate tied his career high with seven. Defense forced two sacks, seven quarterback hurries, five tackles for loss on the day. So, like I said, it wasn't all bad. It it wasn't all bad. The start was bad. And the reason for the start, I think, is why there's some frustration of just things that we have seen all season and and things you expect to be fixed by game seven of of the season right now. But, guys, and I'll go ahead and get into it, fair or unfair, the reason there's so much criticism, and I'll go into detail after I get your guys' thoughts on it, everything – is being looked at through a versus Bama lens right now. Fair or unfair, that's where Florida is at right now. And I'll even take it one step further in saying that there is an even there's more skepticism in the fan base, and and I even felt it because there was so much excitement when Jim McElwain got Florida to the SEC championship that first year, and then Bama beats you, but it's not that bad and i think my story after that was hey you're here early you weren't supposed to be here this year 
Alabama is the measuring stick that you need to uh, to measure up to, to, to live up to. And, and now you've got your answer. And then you get back the next year and Bama just thumps you. And I'm like, all right, well, that's a step backwards. So I think there's some, some PTSD from just, you know, getting there with McElwain and seeing what happened against Bama. And when you come out and you, and you look flat and you're slow against Vanderbilt, I, at least I, I can't speak for, you know, an entire fan base, but I at least start thinking like, Oh, here we go. Here's the house of cards. And Nick Saban is just going to blow it over in, in a couple of weeks when you, when you get to Atlanta. So I think that's not only are you being measured against Alabama because you're on that collision course, but you're also fighting, and it's of no no fault to Dan Mullen. You're fighting what a previous coaching staff did, and and the and the, the trauma that, that the fan base went through, getting thumped by Bama twice after thinking, okay, we're back, we're back, we're going to be in Atlanta, and this is what we're going to be. And then you get thumped by Bama twice, and then there's death threats, and and you win four games the year you know the year after that. So I think there's some some PTSD that Dan Mullen's having to fight against that he wasn't even here for. Yeah, certainly with that, you know, and, and, you know, I, I think that you go back to some of those SEC championship games where Florida, yes, made it to Atlanta, but then got so thoroughly thumped that they led in one of them for a minute. Antonio yeah, Callaway, yeah, and, there was, that, there were that scripted drive. You know, scripted drive. There was, you know, we saw, we saw people looking around and, and, we were in the press box, Nick, for that game and being like, wow, is, is Florida actually going to somehow, somehow do this? But, you know, you look at the national guys like Barrett and everyone, they're like, all right, just just wait. Because, you know, they never they knew the differences in those teams. And yeah, because all the week before as well, you got slaughtered by Florida State, too. So, <laughs> exactly. so, so the confidence level was obviously lower. And I, I think if you're a Florida fan after this performance, it's not super high. You know, you look at and I'm, I'm someone who tries not to read too into mutual opponents, but I think it's mm. kind of unavoidable at this point in the season. You look at Alabama beating Kentucky by 60 points, not allowing the Wildcats to get a touchdown. And then you look at the fact that last week, Kentucky and Vanderbilt were in this, what, 38-35 battle? Kentucky and Florida both scored 35-plus, barely, on Vanderbilt. If I'm a Florida fan sitting back right now, I have to be viewing that Alabama defense as the best that you're going to play all season by far. Take Georgia out of the equation whatsoever. That Alabama defense is not going to necessarily allow Trayvon Grimes to high point the football. Or, you know, that's that may be a pass breakup. You know, the right side of the line is going to be facing a, a much stronger defensive line with, with three five stars on it rather than what the 13th ranked rush defense in the sec if you're still seeing the same level of play against alabama based on mutual opponents and based on just seeing alabama absolutely demolish a program like the wildcats and string 50 plus on georgia it absolutely is concerning and it, it kind of just erases all the strong performances that you see from kyle trask sometimes not erases but it kind of means that is that really going to help you if you're going to end up being in this shootout against a team that has a better defense? I mean, DBUs look like DBU, Devonta Smith, John Mechie. Good luck. God bless. Yeah. And, you know, that's, the, and, that's the best secondary in the SEC. And, you know, you mentioned, Dave, you mentioned CJ Henderson a few minutes ago. And I keep thinking about this all the time. It's ridiculous that people in the media, fans let's be honest it was painted as oh Kyrie elam cj henderson right away seamless transition no one expected the secondary to drop off mm -hmm. despite losing a first round pick one of the best corners that have come through this program i don't want to in a long time and people acted like oh this is dbu someone is stepping right up Jaden Hill, Chester Kimbrough, those guys are next in line. And while they certainly may be great defensive backs, C.J. Henderson was special. First pick six in his first game at Florida. Uh, it, it's ridiculous to me that not only we minimized the loss of David Reese, but absolutely minimized the loss of C.J. Henderson. It seems silly to me in retrospect. 
Yeah, and I brought that up yesterday too. You know, in kind of targeting the the safety position uh, a bit too, and I, I but those every, every bit of those guys that are starting there at safety or in this program in 2018, and that's another position group. Kind of just going to the overall defense and looking at communication issues. But the third year in this defense and that position group has progressively gotten worse every season. So there, there's things to point to where I, I just don't have an answer for why year three, there are certain aspects of this defense that look worse that you would expect to get better when you're having players that have played in this defense for three years to take that step and make this defense not not have such a dramatic fall off. People don't want to say, people don't want to hear this, but this program is missing. And I'm, I'm not saying they should have kept them, so let me say this. But they're missing John Huggins. They're missing Chris mm-hmm. Steele. A lot of the DBs that this program signed who were highly recruited or would be developed right now at this point, those minutes are going to either freshmen or redshirt freshmen or underclassmen. And we say this all the time when it comes to recruiting with defensive tackles. You know, possibly, you know, it was offensive line before this last year. A lack of development or transfers – in one year can absolutely hurt a program mid-season, early season, late in the season when depth issues arise in a year where you're actually really competitive. And it sounds silly when fans freak out about recruiting or freak out about a transfer portal decision, but it looks, it looks deserved in a sense when you have a situation like this where you're forced to play some players with inexperience and you're subsequently taking some lumps. It, it, maybe it's maybe it's only because we only see him in short spurts. Um, but I want to see more trade Dean. And, and if that's yeah. an issue that, that we're having at, at safety, maybe it's a communication issue because it's not a position that he's uh, has a ton of experience at. Um, but but I want to see more trade Dean. And whether that's him playing over Steiner or him playing over Davis or just a healthy rotation. And that's something that we asked Dan Mullen about and he finally said, like, yeah, no, we need to be rotating more. And that's something I, I need to, as a head coach, need to press the issue more. We need to rotate. I mean, last year, how angry were we? How angry were we at how much they rotated the safety <laughs> yeah. and how much they rotated the linebackers and, and everybody was like, stop rotating them. And now it's just like, hey, can we get some can, can we get some new blood in there? And it's it's almost gone the complete opposite direction. Um from from 2019 to 2020 that you're not getting any rotation on defense and now i've got some guys i'm like hey i, I want to see more Jaden hill i want to see more chester kimmer i want to see more trading and i'm not saying you need to and, and the young linebacker, and the young linebackers too i mean hopper, 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 hopper and pierre played good in the spurs that i saw him play in yesterday I know, and i know the fan base has been screaming for hopper for, for and, a good and day. i know the fan base just wants to bury all those other guys and only play the young guys but i'm not saying that just that's rotate, exactly. Just rotate like you did last year. I don't know why you went away from that. And, you know, we're talking about a COVID season and you need to get young guys reps and everyone needs to be ready to play because you have no idea. You know, Dan Mullen said a couple of times, we go into Friday, ready to get on a plane, not knowing who's going to be on the plane until we get our COVID test back. And you have to have these guys ready. And I don't understand why they've completely – not completely, but really gone away from the kind of rotation they had on defense last year. When this is a year that you really need to have it. Um, I mean, I haven't and, seen I haven't seen my boy Derek Wingo, STA Pride. Yeah, he, he was credited for one tackle uh, yesterday. But look, guys, and I hate criticizing a twenty-one point win. But look, everybody went into this game saying, "Hey, this is a game for Florida to get up big." And we do see these young guys a lot that we're talking about, but the game was a lot closer than expected. And those young guys didn't get on the field. We saw some frustration from a couple of players on, on social media uh, last night after the game. So I completely get it uh, there, but, and look, I'm not looking for mass starters to be replaced. I mean, I, I think some of the, the issues at the beginning of games are maybe because there's some starters out there who don't deserve uh, the the amount of playing time that they're getting, and that might be why we get uh, getting some of the slow starts. But there's multiple angles to to look at this. But I do think we can all agree that there's some younger players out there who are performing when they're out there that do need to be on the field a bit more. And and one of them, let me say, here's the outlier in a sense. One of them is Emory Jones. I really liked what I saw out of Emory Jones when he got in the game. Yet, yet after the game, some people couldn't help but say Dan Mullen doesn't care about the Heisman 
Dan Mullen didn't want to actually run up the score on Vanderbilt. Why don't those arguments apply to Emory Jones? That's a guy that you're going to have to start sooner than later, preparing him, not putting him in there for just one play, having him actually stay in for a series, come back in for another series, run the ball, pass the ball, do everything, not just have him in there for little bits and pieces and then subtrask back in. But yet when that guy gets in, people are begging for the starting quarterback to be in there because he's in contention for the Heisman. Uh, or he's playing well. Or he's playing well, exactly. <laughs> and, and I'm obviously one of those guys who thinks that you should weigh the situation no matter what. You don't want to risk injury absolutely to your starting quarterback, let alone one who's in the Heisman contention. And then you add in the fact that your third-string quarterback, Anthony Richardson, unable to make the trip. So you're only there with two quarterbacks regardless. Why risk an injury to one? Who knows when Richardson's going to be back, blah, blah, blah. All the points that you could possibly make as to why you shouldn't do that decision, yet you still see them rotating Emory Jones in. So if I'm a player on the roster who thinks there's less risk for me playing, say I'm someone like Princely Uman-Milan or, like you guys said, Chester Kimbrough. You know, I know we've seen a lot of Rashad Torrance, but there are a lot of Lloyd Summerall. Lloyd Summerall was the other player on Absolutely, Twitter. Yeah. yeah, you could easily make a, a case that those guys should be getting a quarter of action over your number two quarterback, especially if your number one didn't really have the stat padding numbers, didn't throw those four touchdown passes, saw that streak fall. If Justin Fields doesn't go out there and throws three interceptions against Indiana, and if Trevor Lawrence has a chance to throw for 650 yards against FSU, (laughs) people are freaking out even more about Trask only getting to throw for, what, 383 yards because that absolutely could have had an effect on his Heisman chances. If those games get played and Kyle Trask leaves after three quarters for Emory Jones, there are going to be people who are – there would be people right now who would be even more upset that they didn't run up the score and, and try and get 50 plus in Nashville. Yeah. The perfect segue here as I get into a couple of tweets before we go here. Mary Quinn O'Connor says defense is concerning, but I also, for the life of me, don't understand the Emory subs every game, especially when we aren't in the red zone. This is not leak slash Tebow. Why upset the rhythm for three to four yards? It's maddening. So, I, I, I did think that was some of the best we have seen Emory so far this year. Uh, it didn't start out so well early, but he did make some bigger runs as the game progressed. Uh, really nice touchdown pass uh, as well uh, later on in the game. Uh, at uh, M. Earl 321 says, limited possessions early because the defense not getting off the field, coupled with a few drops from receivers, made the first half much closer than it should have been. But honestly, after 30-plus years of watching Florida, Vandy games are more often a letdown than a statement. And that's – that should be said. Uh, we've probably glossed over that a bit. And Nick, actually, you did kind of hit on it. I think already these these new Nashville trips for Florida are usually always a, a bit closer than most people expect. You could see Florida sleepwalking in a few aspects of that game yesterday that contributed to the slow start. I, I, I do think it did. Is it an excuse? No. You know, even Dan Mullen himself has said right now at this point in the season, after you beat Georgia, you're still looking to get better each game as you build up to that ACC championship game. But it is a reality. They probably did a little bit of sleepwalking in this game. Probably not even a game, probably just all week in practice. Like, no, yeah, he said that too. Yep. How, how, how do you get up and, and get ready, you know, to practice for five days? And you're like, ah, we can probably just roll the balls out and, and beat Vandy, no problem. Um, well, you did see young players all week on social media kind of hinting that they would be getting more playing time, and I bet that probably was a message throughout practices. And, and if that's the message for the older guys, then you're thinking, yeah, I get a week off. We'll go out there, we'll take care of business, and I'll be watching the game. I don't really need to practice. Go ahead, young buck, get in there. My my old knees are creaking anyway. <laughs> um, so it, it, it's probably just a something, a, a thought process that starts small but then permeates through the week. And then you practice how you play, um, unless you're Tim Tebow, where you practice terribly, and then you win Heisman's. And, um, but it, it's just something that, that starts small and then just snowballs throughout the week. And then all of a sudden, now you have him prepared. And Dan, Dan Mullen loves saying it. He loves saying, we have to be better. It doesn't matter if you're 10-0 or 0-10. We have to be better than we were last week. And I don't think Florida was better than they were in practice. 
for Vanderbilt as they were for Missouri, as they were for Georgia, um, as they were for Arkansas. So to me, I think that showed on Saturday with the slow start. Graham, I'll go ahead and get your thought on that, but I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll get this no, tweet. I'll, I'll get this tweet because it relates to to all this as well. Um, ben at Gator Seam says the D from the A and M game showed up along with shaky offense. Not surprising given the emotion of the past two weeks. Georgia and Franks combined with a noon kickoff on the road against a winless team. Lots of podcasts this week to miss Vandy, and it seems like a lot of players did too. Yeah, you know, after that Arkansas game, Nick and you guys, you guys were there. There were some players who were. A little bit offended, it seemed that the media, fans, whatever you want to call it, had kind of pointed that to that Arkansas game as a potential trap game, and they were kind of offended about that because we were just a week early. Yeah, (laughs) you know, we were just a week early. But I think that if you really look at it, this is a team that, after they resumed, we had said no breaks, eight straight weeks if you include Atlanta. It's going to get tiring. It's going to get exhausting. There's going to be games that you take more seriously. Than, than less seriously because you can point to that in the NFL in a sense when it comes to the preparation aspect when you don't really have a bye to look forward to anymore and, and you know that some teams are just not up to snuff and aren't the level of competition you're going to face week in and week out. And when you take that Georgia game and then you take that Arkansas game back-to-back, in retrospect, it, it, you know, it makes sense that Florida was able to continue, in a sense, a carryover from that Georgia game because of the Felipe Franks effect and – they they acted like they did, and they still allowed Felipe Franks to complete 15 of 19 passes, and including several big plays. So it makes more sense to me that after those two weeks, you see a drop-off against a winless opponent because, like Nick said, you start thinking, okay, this we're not getting a bye week. This is kind of the week that we can take it easier and practice, in a sense, against a winless team. We can, We can really – rejuvenate before this final gauntlet of playing LSU and Alabama and Kentucky and Tennessee. We can really get back on track. Uh, just let's take it 60% in practice this week or, or up and down, whatever you want to call it. And that's not surprising to me in, in retrospect whatsoever. But I will say, and I, I had some people laugh at this, and, and, and Nick, you, you know what this is like, but you know, Friday rolls along and I'm trying to think, man, what am, what am I writing as my last football story this week? I had to write about how UF secondary shouldn't think of this as a, a winless team. You know, this Vanderbilt passing offense with a, despite having a freshman quarterback had better passing stats than Kentucky, Tennessee, Ole Miss. And they were playing good coming into the Florida game. They, and they were, they were losing games, but played better. Yeah. And they, and I think a lot of people missed that they were getting JV on Marlowe back. You know, that was a guy who 33 carries against Texas A&M and, a Texas A&M game where Vanderbilt looked better than in a sense on defense than Florida did holding them to just 17 points, including I think a safety there that running back looked really good in, in pass protection, catching on the backfield. He had, I think 70 yards in both games had 150 yards, then had a four game suspension returns against Florida. And many people just were like, Oh, this is, it's non-factor. I had some people who emailed me when I said that Florida, I, yeah, I gave Florida 70 points, which I've never done, but I said Vanderbilt <laughs> would score 21 points. And some people uh, said to me, this is a winless team. I had about 20. About? Yep. You know, but I think if you that, really look, was that their, was that their voice in the email? Winless. <laughs> I, that's, that's how I like it. That's how you read the email. I'll just annoy you. Email me, you're getting that voice. I don't care if I like you or not, but winless teams, you know, they, everyone was just sending, saying to me that this is, a guaranteed victory, even though last week we knew that the team was motivated and still allowed Felipe to complete 70% of his passes and Vanderbilt's offense was not as bad and they were getting their starting running back back. So I made all these points and still people were kind of taken aback, but it, in retrospect, it, it makes a lot of sense. Yep. Yep. All right. That'll do it. Uh, I'll save uh, everybody who sent comments. Uh, I'll get a few more into tomorrow's episode of Gators Breakdown. We're running long here. Uh, guys, thanks for the uh, really, really good uh, insight on this episode. I'll uh, dove into a lot here <laughs> on this one. Uh, but Nick, Graham, guys, uh, thank you much. And uh, we'll look forward uh, to it again next week when uh, Florida and Kentucky take on each other. Hey, yeah, just a quick reminder that uh, that Kentucky defense, you know, I know that they just gave up 63 to Alabama, but some former five stars on that roster from the transfer portal, uh, Kelvin Joseph from LSU on that defense as well. He's playing really good. Joey Gatewood, you know, I know that 
a guy who got started late in the season. Uh, I still think he's going to end up being better than Bo Nix. That's my hot take, and I'm sticking to it. And one last, they better they better settle on him. Then he ain't playing too good yet. That's right. That's right. Bro, the three of the three of us could could form a better passing offense than Kentucky. I don't know. You've seen me throw it again. You're not. You're not the quarterback, Graham. You're not the quarterback. <laughs> I'm a long snapper. Let's do it. I, you know. Also, and I got to give Mark. Hey, Kentucky needs a long snapper, by the way. Their recruiting is their recruiting is better than most people give them credit for. I think that Florida can absolutely say that because three times in the last cycle, Florida flipped recruits from Kentucky, including yeah. Lamar Goods, several prospects like that. They've been early on a lot of guys. Miami quarterback Jaron Williams was committed there for a long time and probably would have developed a little bit better at the Wildcats. I don't think any Miami fans are going to listen to the end of this episode. But I do think that a lot of people just – you shouldn't take Kentucky lightly. Let me say that. Well, the comparisons are going to be there. Alabama just played them 63-3. Florida plays them a week later. Kentucky's missing some players. A storyline worth watching is who they get back. They're battling COVID right now. Uh, they were really short some players versus Alabama. Sure, that played a little bit of part. They did move the ball in Alabama early in that game, just couldn't put it in the end zone uh, there. So there's a couple storylines there as we uh, look ahead to how we review this game next week. Yeah, big weeks for the linebackers when you look at Kentucky. So Miller, Mahmoud, yep. James Houston, Bernie, Tyrone Hopper, Bernie, Pierre. <laughs> yeah, big, big week for the linebackers uh, against against Kentucky. And, if, and listen, that D line. And that D line. If Florida's secondary gets beat this week, then I'm off the train. Then, then you guys win. Bench everyone. Play, play somebody from the stands. If if Kentucky beats you through the air this week, then we got problems. All right, guys, there's your preview for next week. We will see what this Florida secondary linebacker core do. <laughs> so uh, we can remember, remember that as you listen to this episode and how we compare it uh, to, to next week in our reaction there. So for Nick and Graham, I'm David Waters, host of Gators Breakdown. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Guys and girls out there, thanks for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown. Gators Breakdown.